From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hey, tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Our very own Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan, is in the house. If you've got to uh, ask Colin a theology question, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you are outside the United States and Canada, that number is one 205 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. You can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson, handling our social media efforts. So if you're Watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Friday, our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. <clears throat> as yeah, he moves go. his mic yeah. into place here. <laughs> yeah, we haven't wired your coffee mug just yet. Um, Why not? That's well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so a few weeks until. Uh, until the midterm elections here, so we'll start yeah. off with a question from Sandra. And she says, on an election ballot, if there's a pro-life slash anti-abortion candidate running for office against a pro-abortion candidate, is it a sin to vote for the pro-abortion candidate? It has been said by some that if you're not voting for a candidate because of his pro-abortion stance, then it's not a sin to vote for the pro-abortion candidate. Is that true? Technically, it's true at the level of theology in that uh, the church in its tradition and uh, reaffirmed by a statement of then-Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger to the U.S. bishops in 2004, that if a person voted for a, uh, for a politician or a candidate for office who, whose positions were inimical to the church, as is the abortion position, the euthanasia position, um, the gender ideology, we could go down the list of, of positions which would be inimical to the church. In other words, would put one in opposition to Catholic moral theology. That unless one was voting for the person because of that, that no, you could vote for a person, for example, um, I suppose that this was a very theoretical consideration in a recent election, and that is, well, one candidate might get us into a nuclear war, and billions of people die. You know, there's only a million dead in the United States through abortion. You have to weigh that. The only difficulty with that logic is there are a million actually dead, and to have a possibility that somebody might do something really stupid uh, and get us close to a nuclear slugging match with, say, Russia— uh, that possibility by itself would only suggest something that might happen. Abortion is actually happening. And I think as we see the political positions of different candidates line up 
and we look at not just the candidates, but the platforms which the candidates say that they are wholeheartedly in support of, I think you almost have to make a judgment on the platforms as well as the individuals in order to give a very a serious consideration. And that means a consideration of, will my election of this individual, when taken all together in terms of the common good of the United States and of the world, will it advance life? Will it advance marriage and, and family? Will it advance uh, freedom of thought and freedom of conscience, such as religious freedom and especially uh, freedom to educate your children according to your faith and to raise them and exercise your parental rights. When you make those kinds of judgments, I think it will be clear to most individuals which candidates, although they may have some issue right in your mind, it might be immigration, it might be health care, but when you weigh these three critical life issues, I think it will be clear to most individuals there is not any compelling argument which would suggest that a candidate who supports pro, you know, freedom with regard to abortion, the taking of a life beginning at conception, um, that that individual will in the end, all together looking at what they stand for, vote for the common good of the United States. I think that's those markers have changed considerably in the last 40 years, and I think it becomes ever clearer just exactly who uh, will uphold these three essential principles according to church teaching, according to our U.S. Bishops' Conference, according to the Catechism, according to the Gospel of Life of John Paul II. These three things of respect for life and human dignity at all stages— from life to natural uh, conception to natural death, respect for marriage and family and all of those areas of marriage and family and sexual morality which support and defend the n nature of a society built on the family, uh, properly understood, and also the elements of, of freedom of conscience, whether it's the freedom to say, you know, I don't want to go to war, conscious objection for something. Freedom of conscience can be conscientious objection to particular health care being proposed to you, could be conscientious objection to a particular therapy, could be conscientious objection to having your children forced to do things which uh, you disagree are, are not in their best interest, but some uh, generally anonymous or unrelated person wants to tell you how to raise your children and do what you want. When you look at those three issues, I think there are very few upright consciences could conclude that such pro-choice politicians actually, in the main, have the best interests of our society at heart. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Got uh, plenty of open phone lines for you. Just getting started on an open line Friday, 833-288-3986. Joe writes in, the church has never declared Mary as co-redemptrix. It is not a dogmatic teaching. In fact, the church has consistently resisted doing so. Among some Catholics, it is a matter of piety, but not of dogma. Is this correct? Well, another yes and no answer. Uh, because, as a matter of fact, most things which we hold as a truth and declared as a dogma are not things which suddenly popped up in history and have no relationship to the total deposit of the faith. But they are in, at least implicit in that faith, and the church 
figures at a particular time, it's ripe to declare them. So the seeds of something like co-redemptrix or mediatrix of all graces, all of these things are well established in, in general uh, in the deposit of the faith. There are probably not particular agreed-upon theological statements, because here is what is necessary when the dogma is declared. When you look at, say, the dogma of the Immaculate Conception or the Assumption, Pius IX and Pius Twelfth, you see that they are very clear and they use language, which is the language of the teaching that the Church considers is revealed. What aspects it says are part of the dogma and are therefore obliged of those who claim to hold the Catholic faith, and it may leave other matters unstated. The, the, the dogma of the, of the consumption is a very good example of that. He points to, Pius XII points to the tradition that Mary died, but he doesn't dogmatize it, whereas he does dogmatize the assumption. There could be other ways, and but this is certainly the tradition of the fathers and so on and, and most theologians. So he, he mentions that in there. He uses that as a build-up to the thesis. But the letters in black, if you will, of the actual dogma is precisely what Catholics are obliged to hold, not the peripheral things. So it may be that on some of these things that the Church has not so far dogmatized, like the co-redemptrix, Language or a way of expressing it, which doesn't offend, uh, that maybe has is ecumenically sensitive, that attracts others to the teaching, including those Catholics who have difficulty with it, and explain it fruitfully in in the process. That time is not yet right. Doesn't mean it will never come. However, to say it's a teaching of the Church at some level, I think, is true. To say that the church has dog- dogmatized it, declared it a dogma, is certainly also true. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, your number is one 205 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Sam in Boise, Idaho, Ryan in the great state of Washington, and plenty of time for your phone calls as well. 833-288-EWTN. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Through redemptive Catholic journalism, EWTN News helps advance the gospel and teachings of the church. Get our trusted Catholic news in your email inbox by visiting EWTN.com and simply click on subscribe. Two open lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. First up is Sam in Boise, Idaho, listening on our great affiliate there, Salt and Light Radio. Sam, you're on with Colin Donovan. 
Hi, guys. Colin, Jack, thank you for taking the call. My question is, um, the souls in purgatory, do they recognize, do they have a form? Do they recognize each other? Or do they know each other? And, and a two-part question, if I could, mm-hmm. do the Protestants use Jesus on the cross telling St. Dismas he would be with him in paradise that day as a major objection to purgatory? Um. I'm not sure regarding the last year. That might, that might be a good uh, question for... Uh, some do. Some do. Well, here we go, as a former. Um, regarding the first part, it's an interesting question philosophically, because if you think about it, we are a body and soul. And while they are in union, uh, the general things which we taught, the faculties of the body, intellect and will, imagination and uh, memory... Imagination and memory are very deeply dependent upon our, the material processes, obviously. We know how, from neurology, we know how memories are made and stored in the brain and so on. And so that's part of it is a very material process. Uh, but in the end, we have to say that the effect of the, the unity of the body and the soul during life does have some distinguishing result in each individual, uh, even in their soul. So when the soul is separated, you would have to say that there is no imagination and memory or senses to, to allow us to recognize somebody. But as we say with the saints knowing how things are going on earth and praying to them, in God, God enlightens all of these individuals without the sense experience. The angels have never had that. Uh, The saints who are in heaven without their bodies don't have that. Uh, Of course, our Lord and our Lady do. Um, And so we have to say that all the knowledge that they have is in God, and that surely permits them to know each other, I would think, and to to know uh, in God, legitimately what is taking place with their loved ones on earth as part of their purification, obviously, uh, to to see in their own life, their own knowledge of their own sinfulness, which would be uh, separated in the material order from them at that time. They would also have to know that. But, of course, there is that whatever the effect of our earthly life is on the soul itself, which they will be in firm possession of. So I think at the operating level, we can say it's not a human knowledge as we understand it, but in God, there is certainly that knowledge of each other and what is going, you know, uh, the debt we have to pay to God and the, the value of the purification they're undergoing, the prayers of those who are praying for them and having masses offered for them and so on. And all of those details, it would be easy um uh, if they were alive on earth and had all of their human faculties. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Next up is Ryan in the great state of Washington, watching us on YouTube with an age-old question, Colin. Ryan, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, guys. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, my wife, when she when she worked at a Catholic school, um, the a priest would come around uh, every day and give her communion, and all she had to say was, Lord, I am not worthy, et cetera, et cetera, and she received communion. I want to know, um, 
what's the difference between that and going to Mass, and what does actually constitute going to Mass? Okay. Um, well, that was that was communion, a communion, a communion rite outside of the church, such uh, outside of the Mass, such as a priest would do in, or even a uh, uh, extraordinary minister of Holy Communion would do in taking communion to the sick. So there, there is a formula for that. Uh, there is a general structure, which usually means something similar to a Mass in the sense that you may have one of the Scripture readings, and then you have the perhaps the Our Father and the and the distribution of communion, a time for reflection, and then if the if the minister is a priest or deacon, they can obviously give a blessing, or you can use a uh, a common blessing, um, uh, such as permitted to the laity, and conclude that way. So that's sort of the general structure, and obviously for time reasons, uh, sometimes it doesn't quite as full as that, but that would be the normal thing. The difference between the Mass and that kind of an instance is the Church believes that in the Holy Eucharist that Christ becomes present at the twofold consecration with his body and blood separate, not that he is dying again, but we have a sacramental representation of his death on the cross. Humanly, death is, this, is the, the, the body ceases to live, the blood may or may not be separated from it, but there you get the idea that the separation of, bre- of the body and the blood at the consecration independently of those two things in the Mass symbolizes then and sacramentally represents the sacrifice. From the sacrifice comes the gift of Christ's body and blood, which he promised at the Last Supper, which he promised in the Gospel of John. Uh, Chapters 3 and 6, he spoke of it. And from that promise, that comes from from the Mass. And to that extent, you would say that the Last Supper was a sort of a pre-Mass, a pre-celebration, a institution of the Mass, uh, although it would have to be completed in the actual uh, passion, death, and resurrection of Christ. And then in receiving communion, the gift of the body and blood, as the apostles did at the Last Supper, the individual has that personal, uh, uh, personal union with Christ. Uh, I've always found it rather unusual that you know, Protestants will tell a Catholic, you must have a personal relationship with Christ. But for the Catholic who goes to Mass even week and every week, and those who go every day, as many of us do, then that seems rather strange when we have this time when Christ is really, truly, and substantially inside of us, inside our very nature. And this is the way in which our nature is elevated and the way that we receive uh, uh, grace directly from him and have that personal relationship with him. And then, of course, communion can be taken outside of that to the Eucharist, to the sick, and this was done in the very early church. We see that uh, the church would uh, often, family members would do it. This is more common today as well. They can be deputed by the priest to take communion to a sick family member. Or we had the acolytes in the early church, one of the stages that are now part of the uh, priestly preparation and diaconal preparation, uh, they would do that as part of a, as a function to take communion from the mass to the sick. So, the communion which your wife wife received was certainly a fruit of the mass. Uh, it wasn't a mass, however, but is that that fruit which permits us to have this personal, sacramental, and consubstantial union with Christ Himself for the time that the species remains within us naturally. 10 to 20 minutes, perhaps. 
Thanks, Ryan. We appreciate the phone call today. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. John is in Arlington, Virginia. He's listening on Guadalupe Radio. John, thanks for holding. You're on with Colin Donovan. Thank you. Good afternoon, gentlemen. My question relates to seeking a plenary indulgence. Uh, One of the required elements in that is freedom from attachment even to venial sin, which would seem to me to exclude most of us. Uh, So I'm just wondering how how to explain that particular element. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we as easily fall out of that non-attachment to sin, but I think we may be overstating the difficulty. The, The thing about the receiving indulgence, if you look at the way the church has set them up, it's like it's it's an extension of the sacrament of confession, the catechism tells us, because it's that same absolution uh, renewed or extended, as it were, from the power of the keys, in this case exercised by the church herself who established it, as opposed by exercised by an individual minister in the sacrament. And so Sure, we do go into confession. We don't know whether we are perfectly contrite. The Church says that we can be raised from that in that moment uh, through the through the absolution so that we are completely absolved. And likewise, when we receive an indulgence, I think even from the human point of view, we realize that the effort that we put into it to satisfy the conditions shows our disposition. In the same way as in the sacrament of confession, the priest doesn't have a little meter that, oh yeah, Jack was really sorry for those things he confessed, or, you know, Colin really didn't mean to do that. He, you know, it doesn't tell him that we're, we're fooling him and we're fooling ourselves. So he goes by the signs, the effort, the effort that is put into it, the sincerity that he hears in the voice of the penitent, and so on. And so likewise, there's that moment of focusing that the indulgence causes us to do. We have to you know, we have to seek it. We have to satisfy what the church says we ought to do. And I think in, you know, in the goodness of God's grace, he helps us in that moment to actually have that freedom from attachment to sin. Now, our weak human nature being what it is, we want, might walk out for five minutes into the parking lot and without thinking shout at somebody because they cut us off as we're getting out of the parking lot. Uh, that's going to happen. It doesn't mean, you know, we, you didn't go to confession and you weren't absolved. It doesn't mean you didn't re- just receive an indulgence for, you know, for Mercy Sunday or whatever it is. But it just shows you're still human. You got a way to go to being a saint who is confirmed, perfectly confirmed in grace and uh, is unlikely to ever lose it from any human psychological perspective. You know, when we talk about this business of being detached from sin, even venial, um, you know, some conversations make it sound nigh on impossible. Right. Uh, some just really don't have an... Here's an explanation I like a lot that Father John Tregilio uses. It's both challenging yet attainable, I think. Mm-hmm. And he describes it as, as being able to look back on your sins without fondness. Yes. I mean, that's that's a good explanation. Because actually... To look back on your sins with fondness causes them to revive in us. I mean, that's our church's theology, too. You could be absolved for killing somebody and then the next day think, you know, well, I'm glad I got absolved, but I'm not sorry I actually killed the, you know, the so-and-so. 
uh, you've just revived, you've lost, you know, you just revived that mortal sin in your soul. So I think that's a good explanation and probably formed by that, uh, that, that theological perspective. Great question, John. We appreciate it today. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Danny in Columbus, Ohio, Dean in Superior, Wisconsin, and we've got time left for your phone calls. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. A couple of our radio partners need your help next week. AM 1260, The Rock in Cleveland is airing their fall spirit drive. And Holy Family Radio in Harrisburg and Lancaster, Pennsylvania, they're conducting their silent pledge drive next week. So if you're listening in northern Ohio, central Pennsylvania, or anywhere, please support your local Catholic radio station. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next up is Danny in Columbus, Ohio. He's listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Danny, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program. Thank you. What can we do for uh, you today? I am a, okay, I am a uh, retired single male who has stopped going to Mass because I feel self-conscious and uncomfortable. And that is not just with mass in all areas of my life, mm-hmm. and I, I, I am. I love the church, and I am terminally Catholic, and I feel sure. guilty not going, but I don't feel comfortable. So, I yeah. just wonder what your thoughts. Yeah. Well, um, there there are many reasons. The obligation of going to mass is is certainly one one part of it. That is. A canonical way of expressing the uh, commandment, you know, to keep holy the Sabbath. This is the way the Church does it by specifying that we go and we give thanks for all of God's good and gracious gifts, the gift of creation, and most especially the gift of redemption, and also certainly forward-looking our own san- uh, sanctification and glorification with Him in heaven. So. The Eucharist, the Mass, is the way we weekly give thanks. The way the Jewish people would, uh, you know, would uh, honor the the commandments and God's uh, creation uh, of the world and so on by celebrating uh, the day of rest, the seventh, the seventh day of the week, as they counted it. So that's that's the canonical, that's the the theological and the moral reason why the Church has that rule. Now, there are a number of reasons that a person might not be able to go to Mass. Uh, The Church generally puts reasons into two buckets, if you will. The physically, I can't go, or the morally, I can't go. So physical impossibility and moral impossibility. Uh, Moral doesn't necessarily have to do with, you know, some sinful reason or whatever, but I'll get to that. The physical impossibility, that's clear. You know, there's no mass. There's no mass nearby. You live in the boonies. You're not obliged to go eight hours or six hours. And uh, tip- typically, even going an hour is probably excusing. I think one time there was a standard if you had to go 30 minutes even uh, to get to mass, you weren't strictly obliged. Obviously, the more zealous person would, would go an hour and a half to go to mass or however long it took. 
But the moral excuse or the physical excuse is the inability to get there for some reason. That can be weather, that can be snow, that can be sickness, uh, all kinds of reasons. The moral reasons, and, and I don't know what your, you know, your situation is in that respect, but if, uh, if you're under medical care and, and this beca- is a, something that truly troubles you, then you know, that could fall into that category as well. The moral reason might be, for example, I know in the bad old days, there could be the reason that if I go to Mass, the Mass is so abusive, the priest doesn't follow the rubrics. He, he, he uses it to promote politics or his own personal theology, not the teaching of the Church. If I go to Mass, I'm going to come out angrier than I went in. There's a good reason. Maybe if you can't get to a Mass which is faithful, you don't need to go. And I think it's possible that your case may fall into that. But I think what you need more than my advice on those general things is to maybe call the parish priest who has a response. He has a canonical and moral responsibility for you in whatever territorial parish you live and ask him to come for a visit that way and, and explain your situation. You'd love to go to confession. You'd love to receive the Holy Communion. Uh, I have reasons why I don't. Please, will you come and, you know, help me wade through them or do something like that? I think that would be very beneficial to you, and it would also ease your your conscience if you're justified in doing it. Uh, it may also prick your conscience if you, there may be a little, you know, unjustification in there uh, as well. So I, I would suggest that what you do, because it's not something that can be answered over radio, obviously. Uh, with the details that would be needed. But I think that would be a good way, and he has an obligation to you because you're in his territory given him by the church, uh, and so I would appeal to him for, for help with, with this difficulty and for confession and communion, if nothing else. Is that helpful, Danny? Yes, it is. Thank you. You're very welcome. We appreciate the phone call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833 833- 288-3986. Dean is in Superior, Wisconsin. He's a first-time caller listening on Real Presence Radio. Dean, you are on with Colin Donovan. Thank you very much. Our Lady asked uh, the three children at Fatima, quote, ask the popes to consecrate Russia, quote, Russia only to my immaculate heart, and, she, and she, Russia will not spread their, their errors throughout the world. Uh, Lucia couldn't get a pope to do that for quite a while. And then one of her confessors said, well, broaden that. Say, maybe say the world and, and the mention of Russia. And so that was done, and some blessings, of course, came from that. But uh, Russia... Ukraine needs help right now and needs a weapon. The greatest weapon of all would be to just take Our Lady at her word and just try it. Consecrate Russia to my to her immaculate heart. Why doesn't a pope do that? Because I don't think popes are reading it as narrowly as you do. Um, and that is the value of a consecration is to call for the particular intercession of the Blessed Mother. This has been done. Also, I would dispute your point uh, regarding uh, the expansion of it to the world because when our Lord appeared to uh, Blessed Alexandrina de Costa, 
Uh, and he asked specifically for the consecration of the world to the Immaculate Heart. And so all the evidence points to the fact that in 1942, when Pope Pius XII consecrated the world to the Immaculate Heart, that it was done because of the influence of Blessed Alexandrina de Costa and the Portuguese bishops and their, her confessor who brought that to the Pope, and that he accepted that. And so uh, he acted on that and not on the, the Fatima request. We don't know why that is. Uh, Fatima had local approval. It was advancing in the usual ways which apparitions and those kinds of things do. So there's simply no way of knowing what his logic was. But we know that Christ himself asked Blessed Alexandrina to ask this of the Pope, and the Pope did it. In 1952, Pius XII uh, did consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart. Now, he didn't do it in union of the bishops, so that argument could be made that, no, he didn't do that. But if he had said, well, I consecrate Rush to the Immaculate Heart, and I consecrate the world to the Immaculate Heart, which he'd already done, so he, why can't he repeat that? Uh, it still wouldn't have satisfy, satisfied that element. So along comes John Paul II. He's shot. He looks into this. Um, he calls for the message. He reads the message. Uh, he talks to uh, individuals in Portugal, for example, who, uh, who are familiar with, with it. And he concludes, first of all, that he's going to go to Fatima, which he did a year after his uh, assassination attempt. I was there uh, in 1982 when he went there, and he made a consecration, uh, yes, of the world to the Immaculate Heart. And then in the following year, he, he did, in, or two years later in 1984, he consecrated the world with the participation of the bishops. And he met with a special mention of Russia. Now, to me, maybe I'm just a simpleton here, but it's a gross sense of legalism to say that the Pope intending to consecrate Russia, but simply not saying her name, that anybody in the world would have misunderstood what he was about with all of his history. He did that. The Pope can make a cardinal without telling anybody. It's called in pectore. He makes a cardinal. If he doesn't tell anybody before the Pope himself dies, then obviously that cardinal will never get actually get a red hat, but he's no less a cardinal because the Pope wills it. Likewise, something is done like that consecration by the will of the Pope, not by the ratification of the laity of the world, much less those who don't seem to find anything right with what the papacy does at any recent era. So I think your theological principles are very weak on which you're judging this. Now, if you're looking for fulfillment of this, isn't this exactly what Pope Francis did, consecrating Ukraine and Russia— Oh, sorry, he went too far. Let's back off. Sorry, Pope, just say Russia, because people might not be happy if you say Ukraine. These, to me, are arguments without any logical or reasonable merit, and certainly none theological. So I think in each case, the Pope has used consecration to bring merit to the name of the Blessed Virgin Mary in ways that are, quite frankly, remarkable, after the consecration which Pius XII did in December of 1942, I believe it was, and he repeated it uh, another time. He, re he re restated it in the same language. 
uh, World War II changed around, and there are there's a there's a timeline of connection between that. And then, of course, after John Paul, we have the remarkable fall of the Soviet Union. I'm certainly hoping and praying that Francis's will have value as well. But if you make the purpose a political purpose only, I think this is so far from the Lord's mind. He wants his mother to be recognized, as Our Lady herself said, God desires devotion to my immaculate heart to be put alongside devotion to the sacred heart. This is what he wants the world to do. The church has done that. Consecrations which would have been rare 50 years ago are being used by dioceses, by parishes. This has elevated the, this has elevated the, the theological value and name of, the, of Mary, especially under the title of the Immaculate Heart. And that's what God wants. So whenever this is used, we will see such effect. Now, if we make it only about Russia and our own particular political concerns, now in this country we have many to be concerned about. I don't, you know, we've, I think we've done a consecration in this country as well. We can pray and hope that those will have effect. And maybe it will have some other grand effect as well. But I think the standards certainly of the church's practice haven't required a completely legalistic view of this, but a morally faithful view. In the same way dogmas are made, not by an overwhelming majority, but by the substantial majority of the bishops agreeing and the Pope actually doing. So I think we need to look at this with a true perspective and standard. And one final point, Sister Lucia herself, when asked about all of these questions, remarked that, first of all, she remarked when she didn't know, and then she would ask our Lord or our Lady, and then she would know. She said, we have to understand in the message that when God promulgated and made the promises he did, like the Immaculate Heart will triumph, he knew all the human failures that would... And she didn't worry about that, and neither should we. The human failures will happen. God foresaw them. It's not like we're, it's not like we're uh, surprising him with our indecisions and incomplete choices, but he knows them. And in view of that knowledge, he told us exactly what's going to happen in the end. My immaculate heart will triumph. You know, one of the things that's missing in our culture today, from my perspective, is good quality radio drama. Uh, back in the 40s and 50s, it was the norm. People would gather around the radio and, and listen to these wonderful dramas. I had the great uh, fortune as growing up in the St. Louis metro area that one of the big AM radio stations played old radio dramas on Sunday nights. And uh, what a delight they were. And we have that same treasure here on EWTN Radio with Family Theater Classic Radio every Sunday night. These great shows feature well-known movie and radio stars, a full orchestra, sound effects, and family-oriented stories. That's Family Theater Classic Radio on EWTN Radio, 11.30 p.m. Eastern Time on Sunday nights. Next up is Amy, a first-time caller in Central Ohio, listening on the EWTN app. Amy, you're on with Colin Donovan. Well, hello, Mr. Donovan. Um, i just like to first of all say I love your name because my sons are named Colin and Donovan. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so 
I do have a question. Um, I am trying to uh, encourage my uh, sailor son, who's in the U.S. Navy, um, to reach out to his chaplain, his ship chaplain, who Mm -hmm. he has told me is Catholic. Now, I don't know if the chaplain is Catholic or if he is a priest that is a chaplain. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. So do you have any suggestions? First of all, I guess my first question is, what is the role of a chaplain on a ship? Um, if you are able to answer that, especially a Catholic chaplain. And do you have any suggestions on how I can continue to encourage uh, my son to um, reach out to his chaplain for mm-hmm. um uh, religious guidance, sure. um, especially in the Catholic Church. Yeah. Well, I actually have some knowledge of that, having been in the U.S. Navy. First-hand knowledge. First-hand knowledge, and having been a lay, uh, a lay Catholic leader on board a ship, on a small ship that didn't have its own chaplain, uh, and with the privilege of having the Blessed Sacrament underway and having uh, a communion service on Sunday. So it sounds like you're, uh, as people may know, there is a chaplain corps in the United States. There's supply corps, there's line officers and so on. It's one of the divisions of, uh, one of the areas of expertise that naval officers can have. So the use of the name chaplain implies that this is a minister of a particular religion. Um, if he's a Catholic, then he, is a, then he would be a, a priest. Even if you see him in uniform, he is still a priest, but they wear the military uniform in military circumstances. So the job of the chaplain is basically the same as the job of a chaplain in a hospital, a Catholic chaplain, and that is the, the care of a particular group of people in their special circumstances, whether it's the sick or whether a college chaplain, a campus chaplain, or whether it's the, the Navy chaplains. Um, and uh, the, the unique thing, I think, about the military, and uh, certainly would be applied to the Navy, is that the chaplain is there not just, the Catholic chaplain is there for not just the Catholics, but for to give uh, guidance to other people as they need it. Uh, sometimes it has very simply a material role uh, to help them get, say, f- a special family leave or make the arrangements to get, you know, somebody in the family dies and they have to get somewhere. The The chaplains can sort of smooth the road with the leadership and do all of that to to, to come to the, the help of military members, regardless of their religion. So the chaplain has a particular role, obviously, toward those of his own religion, to celebrate Mass, to hear confessions, uh, to arrange for uh, people who have uh, are being confirmed. I have a friend who uh, was confirmed on, on a military base, uh, on, on an army base in particular, and so they do those things for those people. And in living on military bases, there's often a, ca- a chaplain, a Catholic chapel. Now, uh, what, what, what's your, your son is on a ship, so what home, what's the home port? Home port is Norfolk. Norfolk, okay. Be plenty, the largest Navy base in the world, there'll be plenty of uh, Catholic services available there. Uh, if he, if you can interest him not in his own chaplain, maybe that's too close to home. Uh, there will be a chaplain for Navy Base Norfolk. There will be a chaplain probably for, uh, like we had a service group chaplain in Hawaii. In fact, when I, when we deployed, it was the Navy Surface Group Pacific, North uh, Pacific, uh, Mid-Pacific actually, who uh, enabled me to, you know, 
to to get communion overseas. I did that in Hong Kong. I had a card saying, you know, from the uh, from the chaplain and Navy card that showed that I was, you know, I could be safely given the Eucharist to take aboard ship and so on. And we arranged actually to have that chaplain there in Hong Kong hear confessions and have mass on the ship. That was one of one of the jobs of the the lay leader. And another occasion, a poor chaplain was was heloed into our ship from the carrier and and did the same thing. So uh, the lay people in on ships will do that. I would think you're basically you're you can't make him do any of this, but to encourage him to maybe have a conversation. What are his life goals? To talk about, you know, what does he want? Does he want to get married, raise a family, or does he already have one? Uh, has he thinking ahead to, uh, to what a marriage would be like, what having children would be like, and raising them in, a, you know, a good, a good way? I mean, there are a lot of things that it would appeal, I think, to a young man of participation in the church life. Or maybe he has shipmates who are already involved in that. I know that um, I, I was the only Catholic in the little Protestant evangelical Bible study on the ship, which was a great experience. Um, I'm not sure I converted any of them, and they certainly didn't convert me, but it was it was an interesting experience. You get to know your shipmates that way. If, you know, if he doesn't know what he wants to do, he, but I think I think he has to have a conversation with somebody, and if it's not the chaplain on the ship, then when they're in port, you know, go over to the cha- the base. Typically, I think we always had mass in Pearl Harbor at noon. You know, on your lunch hour, you can go over there. You know, if you're uh, if his boss is uh, his division officer or his chief is tolerant, he could probably you know get a little bit of slack to come back late or something. Um, I, I think that's probably the approach to take, not the hard sell. Does that help, Amy? It does. It does. It's, it's a difficult because um, he is not Catholic. Um, I converted. He does love the Catholic Church. He loves mm-hmm. Mass when he is home. And, um, you know, I, I, he's 21. And yeah. I keep reminding myself of this. And, uh, you know, 21-year-old sailors. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I knew them well back in the day. <laughs> I was one back in the day, yeah. um, but uh, not so, not what yeah. you usually associate with sailors, naturally. Exactly. But. Didn't exactly. get married when you so, were twenty two um, either, did you? No, no, and I didn't get <laughs> tattoos on my earlobes either, as one of our shipmates did. Um, oh, no. But you know, the other thing, uh, oh, I think it flitted out of my mind here. The other thing I was going to suggest to you, uh, oh well, with regard to him not being Catholic. Yeah, oh, I know what it was. Um, I don't know if his chaplain ever has, like, catechism classes or RCIA-type classes. Does he ever throw out a pitch? Is anybody interested in the Catholic faith? There's no obligation to go into classes. At least he'll learn something about maybe he'll meet a nice Catholic girl, and he'll he'll know a little bit more about the faith than he would know otherwise. So... um, uh, that might be something to do too. Is as I say, you can go to catechism classes if the, if they're being held on the ship, or go through RCIA without, you know, any ultimate obligations. That may be the only thing that's uh, available to him. That would give him some camaraderie as well as some, you know, more official uh, understanding of what the faith is and and so on. Uh, and it may attract him to to it. 
God bless you, Amy. We appreciate the phone call. Uh, you alluded to the answer to this question in your last answer, Colin, but Jeannie writes in, How does the church feel about communion services? I heard that it is improper because we should not receive the sacred Eucharist unless it is consecrated by a priest and handed to us by the priest. Thank you. Well, it can't be consecrated by anybody but, but a priest, so that's sort of, uh, you know, won't, won't do any good. Um, no, you hear that a lot because some people will take canonical legislation or rubrics of previous decades and centuries and understand that this is not possible. What the church permits is what is possible. If the church permits wrongly, then um, we are still not in any risk by, by believing what the church did. We look at the early church. I to- spoke about this early on, and that is the acolytes like St. Tarsisius who was killed when he was carrying the Blessed Sacrament away. These were lay people. Uh, they, they, their hands weren't consecrated. They weren't priests. They weren't deacons. They were lay people. And the acolyte became a stage of the preparation for the priesthood, but it's still not the priesthood. So the very fact that once something was done and thought normal and not unusual tells you it is not the opposite is not a principle of the Catholic faith because the church could never do something that was essential and proper to the church. Therefore, yes, there may be pious logic to the idea that to receive only from the, you know, only from the consecrated hands of the priest. But the Eucharist's value doesn't depend upon that. That would suggest that if a priest were not available, I would certainly never receive from a layperson or from a deacon. Couldn't receive from a deacon. So you have to be careful where that logic is going, that you're putting too much on the, on the person who is giving you the communion rather than he who is the communion you desire to receive. Put your intentions there and not worry about what the church has permitted. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it on Monday with Father John Tregilio with General Apologetics. Father Wade Menezes talks faith, family, and fellowship on Tuesday. We'll be joined by Father Mitch Pacwa on Wednesday, Father Brian Milady on Thursday, and Colin will be back next Friday talking theology on Open Line Friday. Have a great weekend until we get together Monday. God bless. God bless.